Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. So welcome to another episode of the Growth Hacking Culture. And today I want to discuss about why psychological safety became so important only now. So how wonderful it would be if when we make a mistake, it's not held against us. If when you are able to bring up problems at, or tough issues at work, everything is fine. When, if your colleagues accept others for being different, if it is safe to take a risk, if it isn't difficult to ask for help. But let's stop dreaming this reality because psychological safety is the most misunderstood dimension of work culture. So we believe that we are good at that, but very often under the business pressure, we simply suck at that. And today, I wanted to ask to someone who is a champion of culture change to tell us a little bit more and to use kind of her way of telling the truth in a very candid way about what is going on in, in organizations. My guest today is Mara Barkley, and I think that her personal story has to do a lot on how she ended up working on work culture. Maura, welcome. Can you tell us a little bit more? How did it end? How did you start having this passion for work culture? Thanks, Ivan. I'm so excited to talk to you about this because as you know, I am very passionate about psychologically safe cultures because they are the high performance cultures. This is what everybody wants. And psychological safety is one of the keys to good culture and people just don't know how to do it. So I love to help companies take settles, uh, steps, small steps. These are not page one rewrites. These are little innovations to bring forth these cultures. And the way that I was introduced into the need was one of my very first jobs and I have a very diverse resume, <laughs> but one of my first jobs in life was a firefighter in Boulder, Colorado for the city of Boulder, Colorado. Oh yeah. And I was waiting for you to, cause most, most people are like, what? I'm a five foot two, human female. And it was a lot of work to be able just to do that work. So I was also a bodybuilder. I lifted weights all the time. I was very, very strong. Uh, and, you know, just like any other sports team, you need a variety of different sizes and shapes to be able to do the work. So that was my, uh, my first real job. And as some of you know, uh, those of you who are familiar with American firefighting, this is a job that you tend to die in. Like people not, let me rephrase that. You tend to work until you are ready to leave. Like people don't come work for a few years and then leave. It's not like the knowledge economy. People go, they stay and then their, their relatives come, right? It's a thing. And I decided I wanted to be a firefighter because I really wanted to be, do good. I, I, f I felt called to service. I felt called to leave the world a better place than I found it. And I really love the idea of the, the black and white nature of firefighting. Fire, bad, water, good. Call the people who have the water. Like nobody, I thought, well, do I want to be a cop or do I want to be a firefighter? And I thought, well, people aren't excited when cops show up typically. <laughs> I'm like, I like a fan club. So I'm going to ride on the big red truck. So uh, I got an opportunity and I also love emergency medicine. That is, it was, I loved being an EMT and working on the ambulance. So when I was working in the fire department, I recognized that there was a very clear lack of, I'll call it operating software in some of the men for me. They didn't have a space in their brain. They, they've never been trained. So maybe no fault of their own. I'm not blaming anybody here. They'd never been trained how to work with a woman. They knew how to work with other men from different cultures and ethnicities, but they didn't know how to work with women because in their lives, women were either mothers, sisters, or girlfriends, right? So family, caretakers, 
or romantic partners. They did not have a space, the software, the space in their brain for colleague, colleague that we have fun with, but it doesn't end up in, in sex. Like that was because that's what all the movies show people. So mm. it was, there was a lot of education. And I remember at the time I was very young at the time I was in my twenties. And I remember I'd never, I was, I was so afraid of conflict. I just wanted to fit in and I did not. <laughs> I am Jewish. We have opinions. We typically need to prove how smart we are. In fact, that was a, I had no idea I was doing it. I mean, how obnoxious they, they called me Webster. That was mine. Everybody gets a nickname and mine was Webster dictionary. And I thought, <laughs> oh, these men will, these men will be so impressed when they see how smart I am. Wrong women don't do this. So if anything, I just threatened them and they didn't want to deal with me at all. So uh, I was really busy working to prove how smart I was because I was so small that the opportunities to prove how strong I was were few and far between and you know how capable I was. So that was kind of the introduction. And then there was a particular, there was a particular lieutenant that all the men despised. These men just, they, there's so much gossip going on. They talk forever behind this guy's back. And I was like, well, I don't want to be that person. I didn't want to stand out. I didn't want to cause a fuss. And all the other women ahead of me that had done that, I heard all the men complaining about them. Like, well, I don't ever want them to complain about me. So I'm not going to be quote unquote, that woman. And when I had interactions with this Lieutenant, he was such a jerk. He was really into his power. He did things like he would drop a phone book on the floor and tell the firefighter to pick it up just to prove that he was in charge. I'm like, Ooh. what a jerk. And nobody liked him. And the union just like, well, he hasn't really done anything that bad. Right. So they, they nobody did anything about any of it. So uh, I was the one who was like, I just want to get along with everybody. One day we were looking at some new station boots that had come in and I had bent over to look to find my box of them because they're all in shoe boxes stacked up. And when I bent over, he came up and he slapped me on the butt in front of two crews and said, you have a gargoyle on your, on your butt because I just gotten a tattoo of a gargoyle. And uh, I was like mortified. Everybody just kind of stopped. Our eyes got big. We looked around. We're like, do we say anything? And nobody said anything, including me. And I just kind of moved away and I went straight to my Lieutenant. I'm like, I don't know what to do. Uh, that was really inappropriate. And it was in front of people. And what, what do we do? And he's like, well, I feel like since you told me I have to report it. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to be that woman. I don't want to be that person. I don't want to cause trouble. So I asked him to apologize and I will quote him here. He said, I'm sorry. Exactly like that. He was not sorry. And yeah. because I didn't put up a stink, Yvonne, guess who got stationed with the worst lieutenant on the entire department? Me. And mm. it got worse and worse and worse. And eventually I'm just like, you know what? I am done. I'm so done with this guy. Everybody complains about him. I'm going to be the one who's courageous enough to step up and say, this is inappropriate. I have a hostile work environment and I'm being harassed, uh, sexually harassed actually. And when I did that, I really thought that they were going to put me on their shoulders and carry me around like Rudy. That's not what happened. The union surrounded him to protect him and I was ostracized. And this guy was so completely uh, absurdly inappropriate that when the human resources interviewed him, they stopped the meeting and took the union aside and said, you need to coach him because based on what he just said, we need to fire him, but we don't want to fire him because it's expensive to replace him because he's a Lieutenant. So can you please coach him? I'm like, what, what <laughs> I didn't, I couldn't even. So this showed me that I was not a culture fit for this particular, I was not aligned with the culture of this organization and that particular policy was apparently never meant to be utilized. And that creates, that created a very, I felt very unsafe. I felt completely exposed. I felt suddenly like all I had done was, was call a bad behavior to the carpet. And I had zero support I, with the, I, I take that back. There was a handful of men that were like, 
that was the right thing to do. There were, okay, three of them. There were three of them out of like 80 people. So uh, suddenly I felt very exposed. And when you are going into burning buildings with people, when you're going into burning buildings with men who are already afraid that you will not be able to pick them up out of a collapsed floor, and now they're angry at you, I just didn't know. I just didn't feel safe. I wasn't convinced that every single one of them would, would do the right thing if something happened in a building. And that scared the crap out of me and I left because it took a lot of heart for me to be able to do the physical work. And hmm. uh, cause you, each one of them is like six feet tall and I'm like a foot shorter and I was still able to do almost every single thing they could do. I couldn't kick a door in, but I could hammer it in, right? So I just needed tools to do what they could do with their brute strength. So um, I felt very uh, unseen, undervalued and unsafe. So I left that job and I would never forgot the impact of having policies you're not supposed to use, ghost policies uh, and, and this environment of, uh, of uh, behavioral norms that were secret. It was just, it was just rich with this unspoken understanding. And I learned it all and thought, yeah, this is bull. This is bull crap. I don't want to live this way. I don't want to work this way. I love a lot of these guys and I love the work. I love helping people, but uh, this is, the cost is too high. That was the beginning. What you're saying is quite powerful because this is something that happens in a regular basis, in a daily basis. So yeah. in, in my corporate experience, I, I have seen things in, in that direction and as you say it, it i don't want to justify it because it's but it's very human that, that uh, saying i protect my my crew my crowd uh we are the boys club so we have to protect each other or it, as you mentioned also the example it would be difficult to replace him because he's maybe a good element in the team productive he's delivering uh, delivering the, the job but he's on the how he's not he's not fit with that culture that they, they, they that they want to to have uh, it is not for to justify it it's, it's just that to break this cycle that is still today exists and that's why I started saying that psychological safety is something that is highly misunderstood because human nature will try to protect your family. The family is that there is one element, it is a female that is maybe smaller than the rest of the guys. So this person might not be my family. So I'm going to stand with the rest of, uh, of the people. It's, and it's very difficult to, to break. Uh, and, and today, coming back to the topic about corporations. So what have you observed are the signs um, that were psychology psychological safety is not doing that great at work. So what so, have you observed with, with all the clients that you are working with, companies that you're working with? What is happening today? It's, there's a handful of red flags and they're, they're surprising. So one of the things is, uh, and, and by the way, this is tied directly to belonging and engagement. This is why psychological safety is a critical component of high performance teams. And it is also the backbone of healthy culture, the backbone of it. If you don't have psych safety, you're not going to have a healthy culture and you don't get all the benefits of belonging and engagement, which will absolutely tank your performance and your competitive advantage. So the, one of the telltale signs is, uh, people will not give upstream feedback. They, they will, they, they won't, they will not offer any, what's the word, challenge to the status quo. They won't offer any challenge to the conventional thinking, whether it's in a meeting or whether it's uh, just in conversation with uh, another leader, they will not challenge the status quo. The, the politics are a really good sign that you are not in a psychologically safe environment because politics are an extension, a sort of... Uh, an outpicturing of having to manage delicate egos of leaders and, and with power and influence. And everyone is trying to shuffle around and approach and they're spending so much energy trying 
to not offend someone who can get them canned that we, we've lost so much time and energy that could be spent building better teams, growing revenue, right? Uh, innovating products and services. So, so much politics are a wonderful red flag, like such a clear red flag, like, okay, this means that people up the chain, they don't want feedback. They don't want to hear what you have to say. We have a very clear command and control. Command and control is also psychological safety because the operative word here is control. It is not a right. It is not about managing people. It is about controlling people. Hmm. Okay. So those are a couple of things. Another thing is you'll see a lot of secrecy in psychologically safe cultures. There's a lot of reporting of errors. So the reporting goes up. That's how, you know, you have a safe environment. Hmm. Also the input during meetings of people who, um, maybe have an alternative point of view to offer, you won't get any of that intel. You won't get any of that data. You won't have creative abrasion that creates excellence. Hmm. All of those things are suppressed. So two elements that I have to highlight of, on what you said is the concept of power. So when you have the power, you can dictate the narrative about how things are going, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. You are some a manager with influence. You can say this is good or not, and that happens not only at the individual level, people's level. It happens in organizations that are powerful, and they can they may change the narrative of what they do, and it happens even in in governments. And the other thing that you said is that um, organizations that have a healthy culture are capable of talking about their mistakes, what they do wrong. And it goes right, right. up and down in a very transparent way and everybody's aware. And then you don't need this secrecy around uh, uh, around groups of, of people who are going to hide the fact, oh yeah, this person was hired by that, another person. So he might be responsible. And they, they try to hide this, uh, this area of, of responsibilities. And that's something very common indeed. To see in, uh, to, that we see in, in in organizations, where do you think we can draw a line between a work environment that is demanding? So sometimes, I mean, business is business. Uh, you are a little bit blunt. Hey, Mara, this didn't work out. You didn't do a a, a great job. It's it's a little bit about honesty uh, to give feedback in a in a in a, in a clear ways, in a candid way. Uh, and where do you draw the line between being in this type of environment that is blunt and honest and the psychological safety without where we start hurting another person, excluding that person, putting them aside? Is there a, a way to distinguish both of them? Yeah, and I think this, there's a couple of concepts working here. So I'm a huge fan of Ray Dalio principles. Like I want to work for Ray Dalio. I'm like, this is my <laughs> zone. This this is the way I speak. This is the way I want to be spoken to. I want that direct blunt feedback. How else am I going to get better? So that is my personal style. Now, one of the ways that we can mitigate this is through behavioral assessment and analysis. For example, I'm a, I'm a predictive index um, a predictive index partner. And the thing that's very unique about this particular behavioral assessment and analysis, it is very clear in the work style, not just the communication, but how they have a relationship with other work styles. And you can see in the framework where people are going to have conflict. You can predict it like you can uh, predict you're going to be hungry if you don't eat for eight hours. It's very clear. It is science. It is mapped. It is math. It is communication math. So I think the first uh, issue or, or concern is that sometimes you need to moderate or modify your approach. And this is something that's, this is a critical, uh, I'm really glad you brought this up, Yvonne, because this is a critical competency that is currently not being managed, or I should say built into the job architecture for managers. So when you have a very high performance organization and things need to get done, we're working quickly, managers are high performers that get promoted because they're working up the career path, right? Typically high performers are not good managers. They don't have an affinity for people skills. So we're asking these high performance now, these high performance leaders 
to continue being awesome rock stars and now differentiate every single direct reports communication style to try to uh, communicate in such a way that that gets traction and in uh, in my like in the work I do that actually inspires them to do better that motivates them to do better so i think there is room for absolutely room for direct what I call compassionate candor. So it's human first, candor second. I'm telling you this because I know that you're capable and I want you to hear it really plainly. Here's the thing. This is where culture work is so important. This is where I get hired. To, and this is where the work that I do really gets traction. You have to anticipate these moments. So what you're talking about is the result end of the stick. Not the, not the beginning of the stick, expectation management, operating agreements within, within uh, departments, your job descriptions need to have these core value related behaviors integrated into them. If you have a culture like Ray Dalio of direct candor, brutal candor, that needs to be in your, in your JD. Now, if you happen to be, so I'm going to give you two scenarios. That's one. And it's important that when you're hiring people, they don't just tolerate the culture that you have. That's like you're going camping, right? This is how I look at it. You are an organization that loves to go camping. You don't want to hire people who, yeah, like, yeah, I never gone camping, but I guess I could tolerate it. They're going to wash out. You want people who are excited to go camping. You want people who've been, been camping. They have a skill. They can chop wood. They're bringing water. They know how to pitch it. It doesn't matter. I don't want to belabor the metaphor. My point is this, that is cultural alignment. And from cultural alignment, step one, now you have culture add, which is where belonging and inclusion happens. But you first have to define this value-based culture, and then you have to interview for it. And now you have an expectation. Now you have, you're building your psychological safety net because they have already anticipated this is coming, and it's how they roll. Someone like me, I would love that environment. Someone who is, let's say, a millennial or a Gen Z who did not grow up with that kind, like- if you grew up with participation trophies, constructive feedback might be tricky for you. This is just a reality. We need to embrace it and just like stop pointing fingers and complaining about grit. You know what? If you're complaining about grit, that tells me that you are not a good manager, that you are not managing these people effectively. Meet them where they are, which high performers are not trained to do. So there needs to be an accommodation, perhaps, if you have a very, like me, I'm a very blunt person, but when I'm working with different stakeholders, I might as well be a different person because it's about the approach. It's about getting the work done. And I want each person to feel safe with me. I want them to feel respected and seen by me. I want them to feel like no matter what it is they have to say, there is room, there is space, as long as it's constructive and respectful, boom, that's it. So you need to define the rules of engagement. And companies are not good at this. There's no standardized process. Well, if they hire me, there's a standardized process. But we need a standardized process to bring this very normal rule of engagement to every single touch point of the employee experience. And there, there is a lot of confusion, in fact, because companies believe that because you want to establish a human-centric work culture, that you cannot be blunt anymore. And, and that is not true. That that came true because there was a couple of, I don't know, life coaches that were introduced in an, uh, on an organization. And maybe they don't have enough background about what it takes to do business, what it takes, what is the human psychology, because we can take normal, uh, normal feedback, blunt feedback, and move on. We have got parents who have been quite blunt sometimes with uh, with us and we have been thriving we have been also loving that that father who was a little bit saying the stuff don't do that because it's shit or whatever uh, yeah, and, yeah. and we have sur survived um so it is possible possible in organizations to be very business driven and at the same time very human uh, dri driven but and i gave the, the wrong example about this paternalistic approach like a, like a father because parents can be emotional beings also they are not always right 
managers have to be rational at all, all, all the time. They have to distinguish, remove the biases that could be emotional when they are judging or giving feedback to, so, uh, to someone. So it will not be totally like having a father telling us what to do. Agreed, agreed. And I think one of the, the key points here is a, a real sign of psychological safety is if you have a high performers in a management a management position, they've been trained, they've been trained to do the feedback, but they're just not good at it. They don't have an affinity for it. And why should they? Again, there's the system is a little bit set up. It's a little bit inefficient, just conve conventional way of doing it. And uh, if they can invite and welcome upstream feedback, now you have a scenario where people don't feel like they're getting beat up upon and they yeah. just have to take it, right? Now you have an opportunity to empower your people to advocate. If you know this is your communication style and there's just no two ways about it, then you invite your team to give you feedback and say, well, how would you like me to communicate this to you? I'm, I'm, I'm completely happy to meet you where you are. I'm not saying this to offend you. I really, and he, here's the thing though, Yvonne, if they feel like this manager really cares and that the reason they're giving this direct feedback is to get them to the goal that they mutually set, you're not going to have the problem. Mm. It's when they don't think that the manager cares and they're just getting beat up on because the manager has not made clear the strategy or the tactics in which they're, they're, uh, they're offering the feedback, if that mm. makes sense. Does that make sense? Indeed, but, but what you have highlighted is the approach of kind of role modeling, the, the psychological safety environment that you want to structure it, uh, around your team by asking feedback. feedback. Yep. And that's, yep. that's a way to, to role model set, certain behaviors in, uh, in the organization. Now, what is before, in order to prepare this, uh, this episode, I just went to Google Trends and I, I checked like, so how many times uh, psychologically psychological safety has been searched in Google? So, and when you compare co uh, pre-COVID times to today, there is four times more search of that keyword. So, I mean, the concept existed way before. So they, the challenge was, existing before, but why do you think people are more interested about it today after after COVID? What happened do, during that time that people start thinking, oh, that's important also for my balance? Well, well I and this is such a great question. I love this question. Without a clear empirical study done, I can give you my best guess because I'm I, I certainly have not seen any hard statistical data around your question. So mm -hmm. I would come at it right from more of a philosophical uh, a, a philosophical perspective. If I'm not mistaken, and I may be, 2018 is when Amy Edmondson, Dr. Amy Edmondson wrote her book, Fearless, uh, Fearless Organization. That's it. She yep. really pioneered the concept uh, in uh, the, she pioneered the concept in application, in implementation through her case studies. And I feel like that's really what put, put psychological safety on the map. And that was 2018, just a year before COVID started ravaging and changing everything. So I think one of the key points here is that people had a certain degree of stress resiliency, which is the amount that you can tolerate before you really push to the edge. And people had a certain expectation about how much suck they were going to encounter in their jobs, because we are still using an, a, an embarrassingly antiquated leadership style in the knowledge economy that was created in the industrial revolution. The fact that we're, we, we're using it for the knowledge economy is outrageous. And it's amazing to me that in, as much has been I mean, we're losing $6 billion in performance and productivity through attrition and turnover and, and, and toxic culture. That's $600 billion. That is the res direct result of an inappropriate and effective leadership style. Those leadership styles create toxic cultures. Now, when you are faced with the mortality 
of your family members, when you are faced with your own mortality, you are seeing people drop. You are watching the news and seeing all these people on respirators. We've never had a pandemic in this digitally connected global environment. This is a first. The Spanish flu came, but they did not have the internet. This was different. This was a first for our species. It really was. And the level of anxiety created a need for relief, a need for everybody was maxed, no stress resiliency, not just for their own safety and their health, but then companies suddenly didn't know what to do because they didn't have a remote plan. So now their livelihood, everybody was in a panic. They were in survival mode. And when you come to an organization that doesn't care about your well-being during a pandemic, and they are just trying to squeeze you to get your stuff done. I think that's when psychological safety became very, very important as it is the backbone of healthy culture. So I think it was toxic culture that led people to psychological safety. I, I, I totally, so, Without the, all the data and all the stuff, I totally agree with uh, with the, the point that you're uh, that you're making. So it's almost like we had the time to also to reflect about the things that weren't working, the yep, the type yep. of leadership that was super based about the, the the principles of the of the carrot and stick. So we were working just to make our living, to have stuff at home. Uh, suddenly we 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 see a little bit of the gaps of how much when you don't have the constant presence of your leader, your manager, because he is working remotely so, somewhere else, you have the time also to, to reflect about the past and see that you are alone. In fact, doing the job yeah. alone because most of the leaders didn't were not equipped to manage, to, to have this compassion or this emotional connection with, with, their, with their teams. And we realized that finally that it's, it's not worthwhile that we could take other uh, other options. So th- I think that drove this this search for meaning that happened, and I, and I think that this is one of the most positive sides of this pandemic is that we had yeah. the time to to rethink about our lives, about what it, uh, the purpose of uh, of our lives. Um, how would you? Uh, how can you make like a comparison between different companies about who is good about psychological safety? In fact, let me ask you just directly. Do you have examples of companies that have done right in terms of psychological safety? hundred percent. I love to highlight Softway, which uh, is run by Mohammed Anwar. He's the CEO. He and his leadership team wrote a book called Love is a Business Strategy. And this also gives me an opportunity to say, I want to be super clear. I, I am not vilifying executives because they have been trained to do what they're doing. That It is best practices what the way that they're doing what they're doing. And when you have all the pressures and demands at the executive level and you're accountable to the board and their millions or billions of dollars and shareholder pressure as well, you don't want to go about, there's not a lot of motivation to change at a a very fundamental level. There really isn't. And on top of that, these men and some women are are trained to behave this way. And this is actually detailed in Muhammad's book. When he started his company, it began to grow Softway and he was doing very well. So he hired a consulting team to help him build his executive, his presence, his his executive process. And they are like, well, first you gotta go get a really expensive car. Your car has to cost six figures. Second, you need to have the biggest office and it's got to have a lot of wind. You got to have it like on a different floor. It's got to be really impressive. Number three, stop talking to your people. Stop engaging with your people. You need to put distance between you and your people. All of the things. This is the practice. This is the this is the common methodology that is in, that indoctrinates executives. They're all trained this way. 
this is the way. And so what wound up happening and this, and the whole time he's like, are you sure? It felt very counterintuitive to him, but he was a young guy with a successful, uh, you know, I think it was a SaaS, I think it's a SaaS company. So he's like, ah, okay, if you say so, they're like, trust us. This is the way you do things. I mean, that's why he hired them, right? Yeah. His company got a little bump, a little bump, because that's what happens. There's a little bump and then the crash began and it just went to complete crap. And he wound up in, I think it was seven figure debt. And the company was almost done for when he recognized that the way that they had encouraged him to lead was not sustainable at all. And it was really contrary to the little culture that he had begun to, to build. And he did a full 180, mea culpa, complete humility. I'm so sorry. He asked for forgiveness. He gathered everybody around. He's like, this is all me. He took, he had extreme ownership. Another one of my favorite books right now. He took extreme ownership of the situation. He apologized. He admitted he was wrong. He asked for forgiveness. Then he sought feedback to fix it and move forward. They had completely dehumanized his organization and the, and the people in it. And he needed then to turn it around and rehumanize everybody. It was so successful. He built, I, I don't have the statistic on top of my head, unfortunately. He was so successful that other companies hired him and his leadership team uh, to come and explain how they did it. And uh, they eventually created a training called Seneca Leadership. I mean, it turned into a whole thing. And now they have a culture consulting company called Culture Plus on the strength of their Wall Street uh, Wall Street Times bestselling novel. So there are, and they're just one example of companies that are absolutely doing it correct. And the I think the operative word here is now humility, and it has to start at the top. And that is not how executives are trained <clears throat> at all. I think that the, the, the key message is not don't hire consultants to help you out with the work culture. Uh, but I think that companies need to be mindful about the type of people that they get in order to help them. So I'm just throwing some something is that if the company or the person who is helping you to create this psychological safety doesn't have any background about how uh, the human psychology works, forget it. Because yeah. it's definitely a must, uh, especially in the last years, there is a lot of good progress in terms of understanding about how people react to change, uh, how culture, the impact of culture with certain dimensions, certain behaviors that uh, that can be reinforced. There is a lot of good books that have been created, and they are not is they are not books from McKinsey. Uh, no, they are books, especially from people who has like the example that you gave, who has gone through the creation of healthy cultures. Uh, so that is uh, that is quite important. The, the other thing to uh, to understand is that change cannot happen uh, with awareness sessions, trainings. Uh, it needs to be something that is a little bit more consistent because it takes time. Our brain is not made to change from one day to the other. We are afraid of change, right? Even when, I, yeah. when I'm thinking about having a healthier lifestyle, it's a painful exercise for me. So imagine that at the size of an organization, people who are used to do the same thing again and again, the, the same behaviors that were tolerated 10 years ago, this slap in the butt that you mentioned, uh, this mini joke about uh, because I'm brown or because I'm a girl or whatever, that thing to change it takes a little bit of, of time uh, and it needs to have a little bit of knowledge of behavioral science in order to to conduct the change in a in a in a healthier uh, healthier way, so that's my take on on the story that that you that you gave us. Yeah, well, I have a a very I would say unconventional take on culture work. I don't think it should be part of human resources. It needs to be its own department, and it should roll up under the chief operating officer mm -hmm. because psychological safety is absolutely operational. Uh, I would say an operational policy based 
uh, function. You yeah. can absolutely operationalize psychological safety. In fact, it needs to happen. And, and part of doing that is building the culture continuity employee experience, starting at the job description and how you put them through, right? The application process, the onboarding. The onboarding is where they're really going to get a, a clear sense of it. And the idea is you are reinforcing. You are reinforcing the safety. You are demonstrating the safety. You are... Uh, you, you're putting, you're showing examples of it in real time so that they trust, right? And, and, and to your point, I think that the first place we need to sort of aim our psychological safety cannon, if you will, that's terrible using a weapon metaphor. Gosh, humans are so violent. <laughs> exactly. We're so violent. All right, all right, hold we're on. So American. Okay, here, yeah, no, it's so American. All right, how about this? Where we're going to uh, aim the psychological breeze we're going to aim the breeze is creating psychological safety for middle-aged white men because the journey into humility is one of self-actualization, self-acceptance, and it is very scary when you've been taught if you show vulnerability, you will be killed by your peers. This is training. This is how males police each other. Yeah. And um, it's it's terrifying when you walk in and like every all these men are just like within 30 seconds, they're all saying where they went to go to school. They're one upping each other. It's all super competitive and aggressive. I'm like, of course, they're not going to be humble or mea culpa in that environment. I wouldn't either. So part of it is and I have this expression that an ounce of CEO commitment is worth a pound of HR policy because it starts at the top. And that's exactly what Mohammed Anwar did is he came with mea culpa and it was just a dog pile of, of agreement and consensus because the, the more power and influence you have, the less effort it takes to move the needle. All you have to, if the CEO, you have to drop a pebble. When you're a CHRO, you're carrying around mountains of boulders trying to create these ripple effects. No, because the people are going to listen to the people who have the most seniority, the most power to influence their world. And when those people with that influence are capable of effectively communicating through humility that they care about their wellness, they care about their well being, they value and appreciate their work because it is achieving the strategic objective set by the CEO. Yeah. I don't mean to be incredulous, but I'm like, how do people not get this? And here's the thing. They do get it. They don't know how to do it. That is why culture consultants like me exist is to help you bake that in. And listen, I'm, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that I'm going to walk into a command and control environment, especially where some of these men might even be uh, former military because, mm, but I got to tell you, former military, they tend to be the most humble. Yeah, that's something I've seen. They don't need to prove anything. But when you have a group of men who've been taught, who've been trained that they have to prove to be successful without success, they're nobody. They're not going to they're not going to turn in that and be like, oh, I'm just going to be humble and say, forgive me. This is a journey. So it is a graduated process. It doesn't require a full personal 180. What we're talking about is I would, uh, you know, a, a graduated approach where you change your communication strategy so that the correct messaging is being delivered and then it's supported by uh, human resources because they are absolutely a huge component of psychological safety and healthy culture, but it's certainly, it shouldn't be their domain. They need to be in support of, of the uh, executive suite. And then you have boots on the ground. It is translated down through department divisions, departments, operating agreements. And at the end of the day, Yvonne, psychological safety and healthy culture is the responsibility of every single person to communicate as compassionately and respectfully as possible, resolve conflict in a respectful way. But if you've never seen it, they're just talking about it but nobody's doing it. And that's that, that really insidious sort of, this is how things are actually done. That's where you start to run into problems. This is why surveys are really important. Uh, well, not just survey, actually yeah, anonymous surveys actually can be very revel revelatory focus groups, one-on-ones, just getting, just, you know, getting a taste for what the, what the, lived experiences because the big disconnect with psych safety and healthy culture is the intended culture is very rarely the perceived 
culture. Very, yeah. very rarely. There's a big disconnect. And it's because executives are taught to create a membrane between themselves and the people who are relying on them for inspiration, mission, right? All this stuff. This is all where engagement comes from and discretionary effort. It's all from the C-suite. And if it's not from them, a lot of times it's really, really good managers. They're really good at it. And everybody wants to work with those managers. Absolutely. <clears throat> I, I have to highlight because people always often forget that it is possible to measure psychological safety. So 100%. there are tons of different assessments that can be used. So the progress, the effort that you're going to do in building this operational uh, department can be measured, the impact. And the same that you measure sales, you can measure how much you have changed your uh, the level of psychological safety and even the impact with the business outcomes. That is quite, uh, quite cool. My last question, Maura, is, <clears throat> and let's imagine that suddenly, <clears throat> So you, there is a little bit of magic in the world and you are given the CEO position of a 4,500 company uh, known for its low psychological safety. So what would, what would be your first actions in order to correct, to amend this mess? I think my first action would get to be get a really accurate gap analysis and find out, all right, what are the key metrics that have been impacted the most with this toxic culture? So I, I would want to really get a prioritization of where we're really missing the mark, because if I don't know that when I begin my foray into psych safety and, and healthy culture, then I'm not going to be able to see the results and performance and you know gains in revenue and, and things yeah. of this nature. So the first thing I want to do is measure. Where are we? What's what what's being impacted? The second thing that I would uh, that I would do is. Uh, a, a very specifically organized and, and uh, um, listening tour. And CEOs do listening tours all the time. And sometimes they're super positive. Nobody's, if you are in a psychologically unsafe environment, not a single person is going to be honest with you. Know that. So there is a particular tactic that I would use. Maybe it's a little crafty, but I use this and I suggest this to managers all the time to help them demonstrate what psych safety looks like. So if people haven't seen it modeled, they won't know. So mm. you, you put what in the room, you put what I call the first domino. The first domino, there's always one person who's the tip of the spear who will lead the way and others will follow. It's someone who has the guts, the courage to successfully model respectful candor or respectful feedback. So I would invite, there needs to be a welcoming invitation for upstream feedback in order for them to feel safe, to take the risk. And it is a huge personal professional risk to speak to someone who has more power than someone who can fire you and say, this policy doesn't work for us. It's creating this inefficiency or whatever it is. Like our lives suck because of this policy or this change that you made without getting feedback or that was made prior to our feedback prior to your arrival. So I put a domino in the room and I ask and I welcome and I make sure that that domino asks a question that is challenging, respectfully offered, but really challenging that requires me to explain my, my, my strategy. It requires me to explain the why because oftentimes leaders don't do that and that's when they get pushback when you, when you don't get buy-in. And so once they see the first domino goes and they see me respond with gratitude, I'm staying in the humility and, and welcoming that feedback because that's the only way we're going to improve and innovate. Then here comes the next person, the next person, the next person. You have to have that first domino. They have to have it modeled and you have to be willing to listen without getting defensive. And that takes a mountain of emotional intelligence that very many people haven't been trained to have yet. It is a learnable skill, but you gotta be ready. I, I love the story. I, I really love the story. And by the way, I love the way how the, you position because behind what whatever you, you are saying now, there is a little bit of science, a little bit of, of psychology, and, 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 you are, and you are distilling the, 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 the flow of words like in an easy way to understand for someone like me. Maura, I, I, want, I want to thank you very much for, for your time. 
But I, first, I need to ask you, so how can people reach you out? They want to ask you questions to, yeah, to, yeah. to know about what you do and how you do it. How can the people reach you out? I have a, a website, morabarclay.com, and you can contact me there. And actually, LinkedIn is also the best way. And sometimes people don't know what they need and they might not need a consultant. They might need something else, right? So I just encourage everybody to reach out to me. Maura Barclay is my um, LinkedIn, you know, my LinkedIn profile. And I just love to have conversations with people. And I have so many people in my network. I might not be the solution, but let me tell you, Yvonne, and, and to all of your listeners, I am here to help people self-actualize at work, everybody, including at every level of leadership and all the way down to individual contributors. That is my passion. Um, I am here in service of that passion. So if it, if someone's having a conversation with me and it's not my, it's I'm out of my depth, I will refer them to a rock star consultant or company that can show up and absolutely resolve whatever's going on for them. That's what I care about. I do fine. We don't, I mean, like, I, I, I want people to know that I'm interested in helping them resolve their concerns. That's where I get my yayas. That's what I love to do. <laughs> Right. So I'm not going to, it's, it's important that we, we just have a conversation because this is new to people and there is no, you can't go to Harvard business school and get an MBA in culture. You just can't. It's part of, it's part of leadership effectiveness and it is evolving. So there are no stupid questions. There might be something that's actually an operationalist issue and not a culture issue. And I encourage people to reach out to me and let's just have a conversation. So I will be putting the links just below this episode. Maura, I am going to give you a big virtual hug. Yay. It was lovely to, to, to have you in this episode. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Yvonne. It was a real pleasure. I appreciate you and I appreciate the opportunity to share all this with your listeners.